John chapter 6. Now, this is, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you on the front end. This is maybe a little bit unusual that we are teaching this passage this morning uh, on Christmas. Uh, we have been working through the book of John, and this just happens to be the passage that we're in. Uh, that we're in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And if you don't know the book of John, or probably even if you did, you might not know or realize that this is the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, if you hear that, maybe you're thinking, wait, isn't this church and we're supposed to be talking about this little baby in a manger? Because this is Christmas, right? Uh, why are y'all talking about feeding of the 5,000 on uh, Christmas Eve Sunday? Well, let me just tell you a couple of things. First off, uh, all of the Bible, uh, all 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books that we find in this scripture, this miraculous piece of, of work that God's spirit uh, inspired men to write down and record, uh, all of it points us to the person of Jesus. I don't know if you know that or not. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, I hope if you're a part of Point Community Church that you're aware of that because we talk about this all the time. Um, one of the things that we encourage parents to do is to, is to use a resource called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's a Bible that um, is just a simple devotional Bible that kind of takes the stories and breaks them down for kids. And, but it's beautiful to read it because one of the key phrases is that every story whispers his name whispers the name of Jesus. Uh, I would say it maybe doesn't just whisper it, it actually shouts it, that when we anticipate, uh, when we read the Old Testament passages, even stories about the Exodus, which we're going to talk about today briefly, uh, stories where God, God was uh, working in the Old Testament, all are pointing us to Jesus' arrival, to Christmas, that we call it now, the place when Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, and then all the, the text, even after Jesus comes and he lives and he dies on the cross and he is resurrected from the grave. We just sang about that earlier. Uh, it points us back to the person of Jesus and how significant he is to all of life. And so regardless of where we are reading in the scripture, whether we're in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we're about to read, or whether we're in an Old Testament psalm, or whether we are in the book of Revelation, which you haven't read the book of Revelation, it's a little, a little strange, okay? I wouldn't recommend you start there um, if you've never read the Bible before. But uh, all of it points us to the person of Jesus. And, and so this morning as we read, I want us to think about how this reminds us of our need for Jesus, but also the beauty of what Christ did in coming uh, 2,000 years ago in the form of a little baby in a manger in an unlikely place called Bethlehem. Here's what it says. John chapter 6, verse 1. This is also on the screen above me in case you don't have a copy of Scripture. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, maybe you've heard that name before, uh, was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii, just in case you're wondering, that's a day's wage is a denarii. So he's saying 200 days wages, a worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little, just a snack. One of his disciples, Andrew, 
Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so it must have been the spring, great time to sit out on the side of a hill, lots of green grass to sit on. He says that there was plenty of green grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. We're going to come back to that. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew, because Jesus always knows what's going on in the heart of people, he says, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and to make him, take him by force to make him the king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So when we look at this story, um, if you grew up in church, you probably heard this story a lot. This is a pretty common story, isn't it? In fact, we miss some of it because we've heard this story so many times. It's like, oh, yeah, I know this story. I remember this story. It's all about this five loaves, two fish, this little boy, and Jesus feeding them, and there's all this food left over. It's awesome. But I want to reiterate some of the points that John makes to us because I think that there's a significant message that's much deeper than Jesus just feeding a multitude of people, all right? You see, the situation here, first off, just so we're all on the same page, is that there's a large group of people following Jesus, And they want to see what miracle he's going to do next. And they just happen to be hungry. They need to eat. They need food, okay, because they're people. They can't keep going without eventually stopping to eat. So in this story, we're reminded, because he says the word huge twice, that this is a large group of people. Well, how large, you say? Well, he says it's at least 5,000 men. And let's say that these guys brought their families because clearly there were some women and children on the scene. And let's say that they had two children per household, all right? Let's go with the American number, right? What if it's 1.8 something, I don't know. But let's say there's two per household. Well, that means that roughly there could be up to 20,000 people on this hillside. Think about that for a second. 20,000 people uh, on this hillside, and they are following Jesus. And why are they following him? Well, because Jesus has been healing the sick. He's been doing miraculous things. And if we were around during that day, guess what? If we heard this guy was healing people and doing these miraculous things, we probably would be in the crowd too. I mean, I would. I would be like, man, I want to go see this guy. I want to check this thing out. This is awesome. And they, they've now gone four miles outside of town, roughly, out to this hillside. And they're, they're, they're tracking Jesus down so they can see what's he going to do next. Now, that sounds pretty obvious or seems pretty simple. But John's already told us that just because people wanted to see Jesus do miracles was not necessarily a good thing. In fact... What he's pointing to is the fact that many people love Jesus' gifts, but they forget that the giver, Jesus, is actually the real gift, which is very similar to what we can do with Christmas at times, isn't it? We can forget that the one who's given us all these good things is actually in him of himself the main gift. But there's 5,000 of these men, at least uh, we, we don't know how many others, but let's say roughly 20,000 people, and they're out here, they're excited about Jesus, And they think, even after he does this miracle, that he must be this long-awaited prophet. 
You guys know that there's somewhere between four and 500 prophecies in the Old Testament. If you don't know the Bible again, maybe that's a completely new thing. There's four to 500 prophecies where these prophets, these men who were inspired by God, spoke that, that this Messiah was going to come. This man who we know as Jesus is going to come, and he's going to save the world. And, and so these people, they knew that all the way back to Moses, that this guy, Jesus, or that this, they didn't know what his name was, but they knew that there was going to be a prophet that was going to come, and he was going to rescue his people. And we know that they obviously saw him that, as that because they wanted him to go ahead and to take over and become their king and to kick out these Romans. And we see that they are in a situation where as 20,000 people strong following Jesus, they need to eat. And this seems like a really difficult situation because they didn't have Wendy's to go over and hit the value menu, right? Hey, let's just go uh, buy some, some, some junior cheeseburgers and feed all these folks. That wasn't going to happen. So what do they do? Well, I love it because Jesus doesn't just immediately fix the problem. What does he do? He looks at his disciple, Philip, and he says, Philip, how are we going to fix this problem? How are we going to buy enough food for all these people? How are we going to do this? And notice the text gives us a, a little bit of insight and says that Jesus did this to what? Test Philip. To test him. Now, that's important because Jesus is trying to train and develop his little team. And he wants them to see him as sufficient. And he wants his little team as disciples to understand that, that they need to trust him, even in situations that seem ridiculous and hard and difficult. And he is teaching them and he's developing them. He is training them. And I would actually say to you guys that he is continuing to test and to train us today. And there are situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in that are hard, that are difficult, and God is using those things to test us, to develop us, to actually mature us, to grow us. And so here he is with these disciples, and he asked Philip this question. And, of course, Philip says, look, I mean, $200, 200, 200 days worth of, of salary is not going to pay for these guys just to have a snack. Because why? Well, because this, this is a large crowd, and, and this is not going to be an easy fix. And so they continue to look around. Apparently, one of the other disciples is like, I'm at least going to try to find out if anybody's brought anything. And Andrew finds that there's this little boy, and he's got some crackers and some sardines. Because that's the equivalent, okay? I mean, I don't know if you guys, what you picture, but it wasn't like big loaves of bread, okay? This was like his little snack. This wasn't even really his lunch. It was like a snack thing. It was like, a, um, you know... It, and so here he is. He's got this little bitty snack pack that his mom's stuck in his satchel. And he's, this is all they got. And I, I wonder kind of when Andrew brings this, if he's not just being a little facetious, like, here you go, Jesus. Try to do something with this, you know? But what happens in the story, because we know, having been able to, to look back, is that Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. He doesn't blink. He doesn't, do, he doesn't even go, well, are you serious? Bring this to me seriously? Are you kidding me? He doesn't do that at all. What does he say? He tells the crowds to sit down. And the solution to the problem is that Jesus looks at this scenario, and he takes this little boy's snack, and he multiplies it to feed the crowd. And so he, he prays. It says he gives thanks. He doesn't bless the snack, by the way. What does he do? He gives thanks to the Father who provides the snack. When we pray before our mealtime, we pray, and we, we thank God for his provision, don't we? We thank God for what he's done. 
Um, I know sometimes we say that prayer, probably at Christmas you're going to say it, bless the, the food and the hands that prepared it, right? I'm not saying it's a bad prayer, but what we do when we pray is we say thank you, God, for providing. And Jesus gives thanks. He gives thanks for this little snack. Yes. He gives thanks for this little snack, and God multiplies it. Now think about this. This was a major undertaking at this point because 20,000 people roughly, just a guess the ballpark, Starts to be, these guys were not near as efficient as Chick-fil-A, I can guarantee you that, all right? So they start passing this stuff out, and they start distributing. This could have taken hours, hours to get the, this food out to this crowd. And as he passes this, this food out to the crowd, it says not only did they get some food, but they ate until they were full. Man, that's our God. Our God doesn't just, just skimp when he meets our needs, but he goes above and beyond. In fact, it even says that after they had all eaten enough to where they were full, what? They collected how many baskets? Twelve. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. There's a definite connection there, right? Because he's reminding, remember, he's training his disciples to trust him. That they would believe that he provides that they can trust him even in hard situations. This seems like a crazy, impossible situation. Five crackers, two sardines, 20,000 people. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to fix the problem. Because that's the God that we serve. What seems impossible for us is not impossible to our God. And I think some of us have gotten really indifferent, maybe stale, maybe stagnant, complacent towards seeing God as the God of the impossible and the miraculous God that he is. But he can do things like this. This is not just some cute little story that we can teach in Sunday school classes. This is the, the gospel according to John as he records a story to teach us a deeper lesson. Because here's the deal. There's actually a, a bigger meaning to this passage. We can't even get to the back side of it. In January, the first Sunday of January, we're going to teach through this, we're going to start teaching through the seven I am statements that are found in the book of John. And the first one that we come to, Jesus says, I am the what? The bread of life. You see, this story is actually not just about Jesus meeting physical needs. It's about him meeting spiritual needs. It's much deeper than that. And I'm going to try to keep this simple for us this morning. But I want you to understand that we have a situation too. We have a circumstance that we're facing. We have a difficult scenario that we are encountering. And that is this, that we are starving to death spiritually. That we need spiritual nourishment. That we are in need. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are people who are desperately craving for security and significance and satisfaction. You see, have you guys ever thought about this? Why did God make bread? You're like, well, didn't we make bread? Well, why did God make the wheat and give us the capacity to make bread? I mean, have you ever thought about it would be a whole lot easier? Moms in the room probably would say this. It'd be a whole lot easier if you could just, like, kind of give yourself a shot and be done eating. You, know, have to, you wouldn't have to prepare food. Would that be easier? Or just take a little pill, you know, just pop a pill. Boom, you got your meal. No slaving over it. But I know, you, I know maybe not everybody agrees with this, but how sad would that be? Because I like to eat. I like the food. I, like the, I even like to cook it. I enjoy the experience. But isn't it great that God gave us the capacity, the taste buds in our mouth to actually taste food, to actually enjoy and have an appetite, and to, to eat a good meal, and then to go, man, that was good. 
we had the blessing of getting to go downtown and eat at a really great restaurant this week. And I was sitting there, and my wife, she, she knows, I'm like giddy like a kid in a candy store when I get to eat good food. And, and I'm like sitting there and like savoring every little bite. You know, it's like, a, like this eruption of, of flavors in my, my taste buds. And I mean, seriously, this is, this is my problem, okay? I'm just going to tell you. I'm just, I tell you, one of the things about preaching is this is my therapy, all right? And so, but I love food. It's great. But why did God even give us that capacity? He didn't have to. Let me tell you why God gave us that capacity. The same reason he gives us all of his good gifts. Because every good gift points us to his goodness. It points us to our need for him. It points us to Jesus. Every good gift. You see, we as people, we were created with cravings. We were designed. We were created from the very beginning with these, with these desires. These, these cravings, not just for food, but for security and significance and satisfaction. We were created that way. Did you know that? If you're honest with yourself, you see that, don't you? That you have these desires. And the Bible tells us that if we aren't careful, we will actually crave the wrong things. And we will look for security and significance and satisfaction in the wrong things. The way it says it in 1 John, I know this might sound harsh, but the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, he writes in 1 John chapter 2, he says this. He says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Wow, that's pretty strong. He's basically saying you either love the world, and it doesn't mean like the people. The world means like the, the system, the way that we try to find security and significance and satisfaction. That system through which we're trying to find the nourishment that our souls long for, that we look for in all these other things. And he says, for everything that belongs to the world, catch this, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's own lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Those three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, these cravings in the human heart, those were put there by God who made us to crave, but we start to look for the wrong things. We look to fill the God-shaped hole, you can call it that, the desires that we have with the wrong things. And so we look to, as Lucy got up here and talked to the kids this morning, we look to material possessions to be the satisfaction and the security that we all want and long for. But anybody who is, has a brain, I mean, literally, you stop and think about it and evaluate for a second, you know that as soon as you get what you think you wanted, you're like, you move on to the next thing. It's a moving target, isn't it? But see, even C.S. Lewis talks about this when he says that if we find in ourselves a desire in which nothing in this world seems to satisfy, maybe it's because we were made for another world. And the fact of the matter is we were made for another world, weren't we? We were made to be satisfied. We were made to find security. We were made to find significance in something much greater than the temporary. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these are the exact same things that Adam and Eve struggled with way back in the garden when they were put in a paradise. A beautiful place. And we as people are no different than they are. And we are no different in that many people who've come before us have tried to find it in the temporary and you'll never find it there. That's why there's no gift you could get for Christmas that would ever really satisfy. Because the truth is, is that all those things, as this passage reminds us, are passing away. But only the one who does the will of God remains forever. We crave the wrong things, and when we do, we find that it's a dead end. We find that it's destruction. We find that we've, we, we go into depression when it doesn't deliver what we hoped it would. 
I hope you guys know this. Hear my heart this morning. Listen, everything in your world that you try to find security and significant satisfaction in outside of Jesus Christ will rob you of life. It will actually take your life from you. It will actually make you want and it will leave you empty more than filling and satisfying you because that is the way we were made. But what is the solution? That's our problem. That's our situation. Well, thankfully, just like Jesus stepped up to the plate in a situation that seemed impossible, he has done that for humanity, right? Jesus has stepped up to the plate in a significant and real way in that he was born 2,000 years ago. God made flesh, as John said in the very beginning, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped into our mess, into our chaos, into our brokenness, into all of our materialism and into our relational idolatry. And he stepped into all the stuff that we try to to, to worship other than God. He stepped into that world and he said, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to redeem you, even though you don't deserve it. You see, the reason why it's beautiful when we read this story, we reflect on Christmas, is because we know that Jesus doesn't just multiply five crackers and two fish, but he multiplies himself to save humanity. He's multiplied himself to rescue us. In fact, I can't go there this morning, but the other part of this passage, the other half of chapter six, Jesus is gonna flip this script on them because they're gonna keep trying to pursue him, keep chasing after him. Did you notice at the end it says he withdrew because they were trying to turn him into the king? Jesus is like, it's not time, that's not what I'm doing, that's not what I'm here for. They're trying to turn him into the king. But they continue to track him down. And when they do catch up to him, he says something very important. He says, listen, all you guys want me to do is you guys want me to just keep feeding you and taking care of you, meeting your physical needs and doing, you know, being the freak show. But I want you to know that I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. He's pointing to a deeper Reality, because we need spiritual nourishment. Our solution is that Jesus comes down from heaven to be the spiritual nourishment that we all need. And Jesus is going to explain this more in the other parts of this chapter. But just suffice it to say, isn't it interesting that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Does anybody know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. <laughs> isn't that weird? Isn't that a little bit interesting? in light of our discussion this morning? You know why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. Because Jesus didn't just come in that form of that little baby so we would have a cute story to tell every Christmas. Talk about the shepherds. I went and watched The Star with my family. Anybody seen that? It's really cute. It's really good. It's not just so we can have a cute story to tell. It's that Jesus came to lay down his very life so that we could live. It's that Jesus said, I'm going to let my life be taken from me so that you can have eternal life. So that in your spiritual depravity, in your spiritual emptiness, that you have what you so desperately need and so many times don't even see or don't see that he really is the bread that we long for. There's so many parallels in this passage that point us to the fact that John is making a very clear connection with Moses in the Old Testament. Now, again, I don't know how well you know your Bible, but in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses was the leader of God's people, and he was leading them in the wilderness. These guys are in the wilderness. And one of the things that God did through Moses is as they were in the wilderness, guess what? They ran out of food, and they had to have food to eat. 
And what did God do? God did a miraculous work, and he brought this stuff called manna. It was a kind of bread. And they would go out every morning, and they would get the bread, the manna that they need, that they needed to live. And I can tell you today that God is in the business of continuing to give us everything that we need to live on a daily basis. The problem is that just like Philip, we're like, listen, Jesus, I don't know what you're thinking here, but 200 days wages isn't going to even provide enough. Are you with me? You see, because we look at it through a humanly lens, and we need to see it through God's lens, and we need to trust him. And for some today, that means for the first time in your life to actually stop trying to save yourself. The reason why Christmas isn't that beautiful for you is because you're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to rescue yourself. You're still trying to multiply your snack. And God's saying, I've already provided a way for you to be with me forever. You see, this is a takeaway for us. Jesus knows our greatest need. He anticipated it. He knew it from the beginning, far before we even acknowledged or recognized it. And he came down to meet it, even in the most impossible circumstances. Here's the beauty of Christmas. Jesus came and was born in the house of bread so that we could be filled with life. The spiritual nourishment that we seek to find in a relationship, in a job, in an accomplishment, that just is this constant, perpetual cycle of disappointment and discouragement. Even when we feel like we found the one, or even when we feel like we've gotten Oh, we finally got the house. Oh, we finally got the job. Oh, we finally got this. And we keep finding that it's not enough. Because maybe C.S. Lewis's words were actually very true for us. That if there's something in this life that doesn't seem to ever satisfy, it doesn't seem to be anything in this life that ever is really satisfying, maybe it's because we were made for another life. See, Jesus is the bread of life. And he can take a situation where it seems ridiculous. There is no way. Jesus, you can do this. And he says, yes, I can. And he came as a servant. He came in humble setting to save and rescue humanity. Jesus entered our mess to offer us hope, joy, peace, forgiveness, redemption. Did you notice the people here? I'm going to close out with this. Did you notice the people? They really were high on Jesus. They were excited. But here's the thing. They wanted Jesus on their terms. And I think we're the same way. They wanted Jesus on their terms because they wanted a Jesus who would be their political leader, who would rescue them from the oppression that they were under. And I get that. Like, they didn't want to stay in this oppressed state under these Romans. They wanted Jesus to, to, to come in and to take over and, and, like, do something about this Jesus. But here's the thing. If we're going to come to Jesus, we have to come on his terms. And what is his terms? His terms are simple. By faith, receive the gift that he offers to us. Stop trying to work our way to him, trying to be a good enough person. You can never be good enough. There's not enough church attendance and not enough Bible reading, enough prayer, enough helping the poor, the marginalized. There's not enough of that in the world that can get God to love you. He already loves you. And Jesus Christ, he didn't just stay a baby, but he grew up. He went to the cross out of his love, right? 
And today, my question to you is, have you received the bread of life? Have you received this multiplying Savior? And if you haven't, we can simply receive that gift by saying, Jesus, I'm going to stop looking for my security, my significance, and my satisfaction in stuff that's temporary. And I want, I want to trust that you will provide for me, that you're enough, that you're sufficient. That my true contentment is going to be found in you and not in all this other stuff. And what's beautiful, guys, listen, what's beautiful is that things like Christmas and Christmas gifts and Christmas celebrations with our family and jobs and relationships and all the things that this life, even material possessions, guess what? When we don't make those ultimate things, we can actually enjoy them as gifts from God. It's beautiful. It's amazing because we no longer look to those things as ultimate. We can actually just enjoy them and say, God, you're good and you're gracious, but you are the real gift. You are truly what my heart longs for. You are the bread of life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help me and these great folks in this room today to just remember the amazing reality of Christmas. God, I know that we've heard this so many times. We've even heard this story about you feeding 5,000 with five crackers and two fish. And it's just so easy to take it for granted or just to forget, like, you are a God who does miracles, and the greatest miracle that you have done is that you rescued us from the clutches of sin and death. You rescued us. Even while we continued to pursue stuff that you gave us over you, I pray that we would never turn your gifts into idols, into little gods that we worship, but we would actually see that you are sufficient, God. I pray that we would not keep trying to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves, to fix our mess, but that we would trust that Jesus, you alone can save and you alone have fixed this mess, this chasm between heaven and humanity. That you fixed it when you made a bridge through coming God made flesh in the house of bread to give us the spiritual nourishment that we need so we could have eternal life. I thank you for that today. And I pray that in your name, Jesus, amen.